Hello and welcome to episode 1105 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, joined as typical by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. That sounded like I was disappointed. Joined as typical <laughs> by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hi, Ben. How are you? Same old Ben Lindbergh. Hello. <laughs> I'm doing well. And uh, update on our raffle. Still raffling and raffling really well so far. So if you did not catch the intro to yesterday's episode, we are holding a raffle right now to benefit Houston and Hurricane Harvey relief, and we are offering up a few Effectively Wild-related items, a signed book, signed t-shirt, signed mic that was used for many hundreds, more than a thousand Effectively Wild episodes before it kind of kicked the bucket recently. And Russell Carlton, frequent Effectively Wild guest, has now offered up a signed copy of his forthcoming book as well. So lots of good stuff, and people seem to be responding to it, getting lots of donations made to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund and forwarded to us to enter those people into a random drawing. So if you're interested, just go to our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, or go to Fangraphs and click on the blog post for this episode, and you will see a link to the instructions. You don't have to be on Facebook or have Facebook to access the group and just look at the instructions. You just have to go to the website for the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund. It's ghcf.org slash hurricane hyphen relief. Make a donation of at least $10. That's the minimum amount they allow. That entitles you to one entry in our random drawing. Every increment of $10 above that gets you an additional entry. And so the more you donate, the better your chances and the more you help people. So thanks to everyone who has donated so far. We'll keep this going into next week and uh, hope that you all have some extra cash that you can kick in. So thanks to everyone. People seem to love signed books, but where would be the most annoying place to have your book be signed? (laughs) I guess just like scrawled across a really important page (laughs) so that you can't read any of the text. Really, really thick ink. One of those permanent. Sharpies a that sharpie that just bleeds through. through. <laughs> yeah. Every page is signed by the author. <laughs> I won't do that. Later in this episode, we will talk to Eno Saris, uh, related to an article he wrote at Fangraphs earlier this week, talking about whether Chris Hayes, news anchor Chris Hayes, whatever news anchor news anchor <laughs> yeah see uh, yeah newsy television personality newsy yeah. person and mm-hmm. frequent twitter retweeted chris hayes uh, whether he would ever get a hit in a full major league baseball season we will talk to you know about average average american adults trying to get mm-hmm. a hit uh, in baseball yep. and in addition to Eno, we will also be talking with alex hassan a recently former professional baseball player who made it to the major leagues with the boston red sox and generated one hit against eric bedard happened in his major league debut so we will be talking to alex as well as you know about uh what it is like to try to face professional pitching major league pitching and the likelihood of of getting one hit when you have 600 opportunities to do so a fun conversation but before that we have some time for some banter and uh, i hesitate to do this but i guess we do have to do some serious baseball talk right we do there's really yeah. no way no way yeah. around it because at a very <laughs> inconvenient time for writers everywhere yes on thursday evening or for some people i guess friday morning Justin Verlander was actually traded Thursday afternoon. I recorded a podcast with Carson Sestouli at Fangraphs, during which he asked me if I thought Justin Verlander would be traded. I said, no, that podcast has not yet been published. 
So I'm feeling pretty <laughs> yep. good about that. But Justin <laughs> Verlander was traded from the Tigers to the Astros. If you didn't hear about this, which, well, you have. But anyway, he was traded from the Tigers to the Astros. Tigers are throwing in a low-level player to be named later, or cash. But they're also throwing in lots of cash. They're throwing in $8 million a season, not counting this season, presumably. But they will mm-hmm. pay Verlander down from 28 to $20 million a year for the next two years for which he is under control. And the Astros are sending to the Tigers three prospects. There is Franklin Perez, good young pitcher. There is Daz Cameron, good young center fielder. And there is Jake Rogers, good young catcher. Jake Rogers has been described by Eric Longenhagen, Fangraph's prospect guy, as the best defensive catcher I've ever seen in the minors. That is not a direct quote, but it's close enough. I did not pull up the page where he said it. So pretty good prospect haul going from the Astros to the Tigers. Tigers leaning into the rebuild that I think we've known was inevitable for uh, years and good yeah. on them for putting it off for as long as they did. But I don't know. Reflections, thoughts on the <laughs> Verlander trade that are in any way different from what everybody else has already said about the Verlander <laughs> trade? Yeah, I don't know if I have different thoughts. Well, what do you think changed for Houston, if anything, in the month since the non-waiver trade deadline when they didn't make this sort of move that everyone expected them to make? I mean, maybe they tried to and they just couldn't and the Tigers weren't willing to do this very deal for all we know. But they were criticized from outside the organization, from inside via Dallas Keuchel for not getting a top of the rotation type at that time. And I think their defenders pointed out that, hey, they're going to win this division in a walk. They don't really need to do anything yet. And maybe Francisco Liriano will actually be good in the bullpen. So I don't know. Do you think that anything changed or do you think that they just waited a month because they didn't need to do it a month ago? Two things changed, I think. One, the Astros have been bad since uh, yeah. since uh, the end of July, roughly. They've gone 12 and 19, which mm-hmm. they've had plenty of injuries. And, you know, they had an 11 and a half game lead on the next best team in the American yeah. League before that. So it didn't really matter. But they've lost eight games of that ground to the Indians. Other contenders, the Indians and the Red Sox have played very well in the past stretch of time. The Astros have been the second worst team in the American League by record better only than the Royals, who have also fallen apart. I guess that's what happens when you don't score for a week (laughs) and a half. And the other thing that changed is that Justin Verlander continued to pitch well. What was confusing about him earlier in the season is that his numbers were not good. He has uh, his walks were out of control. He wasn't getting the strikeouts you're used to getting from Verlander, but his stuff was the same. It was good. If anything, it was sharper. His, uh, his velocity was actually up earlier in the year, but he just wasn't getting the same results that he usually does. Well, over the past nine starts, he's been one of the best starting pitchers in baseball. He's looked like Justin Verlander. The walks are under control. The strikeouts are up. The fastball is averaging almost 96 miles per hour. So I think that it wasn't going to take very long for other teams to be convinced that Justin Verlander had figured something out. And I think that now that he's put together this essentially performance since the All-Star break, uh, since he's done this for about six weeks, I think that that was enough to convince the Astros that, sure, we're giving up these prospects, but we're getting what looks like a number one pitcher again. Verlander's had a lot of transitions into and out of (laughs) acehood in the last several years, right? Like Since the time that he was maybe the acknowledged best pitcher in baseball or best pitcher in the league, he then seemed to completely lose it, and everyone thought that was it, it was over. He was heading downhill quickly. Then he completely regained it and was maybe not quite peak Verlander, but pretty close for a while there. And then he seemed to sort of lose it again. And there were injuries mixed in there too, and maybe mechanical after effects of those injuries. But I don't know what the reason was for his struggles earlier 
this season. I mean, he started off fine, then he was struggling. Now he's Ace Verlander again. So it seems to have changed a lot. Like just, I mean, before the non-waiver trade deadline, it wasn't really clear how useful Verlander would be, right? Like mm-hmm. people were talking about him as if he would be a big trade deadline acquisition. And then others were pointing out he's not actually that good right now. And maybe it's not worth paying that sort of price for him. And now we're not very long later and he has that value again, apparently. Yeah. So I don't know what people would say now, but in in the off season between 2015 and 2016, I ran some poll posts. Fangraphs love me some poll posts because a poll post is essentially two posts in one. And for yep. one of them, I don't have to do any work. It's great. <laughs> Nobody stare too closely at the next time I run a poll post. Just don't worry about it. So I asked people, I give them a, a selection of starting pitchers and I asked them simply, do you think this guy is an ace or not? And between 2015 and 2016, Verlander was coming off a year when she made just 20 starts. He had a mid three year but his striker rate was down. He had not been very good in 2014, the season before, but he was coming off having been about a three-win pitcher over 20 starts in 2015, but seemingly diminished. And according to the voting results, only 21% of respondents decided at that point in time that Justin Verlander was an ace. That put him between Carlos Carrasco, 28%, and Marcus Stroman, 17%. So at least back then, it seemed like Verlander had mostly lost his ace label. Of course, the following season, Verlander came up just short of winning the American League Cy Young. Many people think that he should have won the American League Cy Young. Mm -hmm. So then that would have presumably vaulted Verlander back into acehood, where I guess at least by the polling, I defined acehood as anyone who got the majority of votes. Mm -hmm. So you figure that season would have put Verlander back over 50%. Then the first half of this season would have presumably bumped him back under 50%. But if you had to guess, I'm not going to actually poll, but if you had to guess, where do you think people would, what, what percent yes vote do you think Verlander would get in a hypothetical poll of the audience, whether Verlander is an ace right now? Our audience? Yeah. I mean, yeah, basically the same audience as the Fangraphs audience, right? Right. Yeah. I would guess that the typical average baseball fan nationwide would have a higher percentage probably than Mm -hmm our listeners just because he has that reputation and maybe they're not paying attention to each individual half season. But I would say among our listeners right now, hmm, 40% maybe. Mm -hmm. That's that's roughly what I would think. I Mm -hmm. could be wrong. Yeah. Well, I think that's reasonable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do you think it's unusual for this much activity to happen in August? I've seen people asking that and There was an MLB Trade Rumors post about the Astros getting Verlander that just said the August trade period has never been so loaded with blockbusters. It did not offer evidence to that end, but but it does seem like it's a lot for guys like Upton and Verlander to get traded. I, I think Grant maybe did a post about just the quantity of deals that happen in August typically, and maybe this isn't out of line with that, but it seems somewhat unusual to see players of this caliber and fame be traded this late in the season. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. Again, I could I would like to have some data, which I don't mm-hmm. know how easy it would be to to get it, but I wonder, even though in the Tigers case, it's not like they were on the periphery of the race a month ago, that with Upton and Verlander, that was just shedding big money, but I think that 
when you have you have this extra wild card and you have when you have leagues that are so tight that maybe it just takes teams longer to figure out what they want to do and so maybe they're just not mm-hmm. ready to make a decision by the end of july i think this is one of the reasons why people have argued that the trade deadline should be pushed back yeah uh, in fact i don't i don't know if i have an informed opinion on this but i wonder what the purpose is of having trade deadlines at all i haven't read maybe stephen goldman might be the person to talk to like the trade deadline origin yeah. story mm-hmm. i think yeah he actually uh, he has spoken about that on his podcast the infinite which is great. Go listen to it. I like plugging it, but yeah, <laughs> right. Well, you have a, a far better memory than I do. So in the case that you've listened to that podcast, do you remember anything <laughs> about the trade deadline origin story or what the argument is for why uh, deadlines exist in the first place? I don't remember the exact origin story. I mean, it used to be earlier. It used to be what, like June 15th or something. And then it was moved back, but I forget the exact circumstances, but there is an episode of The Infinite Inning where Steve runs through that several episodes ago, right around the trade deadline, Mm -hmm. not so coincidentally. So I will go back and review that. Everyone else should go back and review that. But yeah, this seems like it could be related to just the way that teams have bunched up this year, although the Astros are not like one of these wildcard contending teams and neither are the Tigers really. But does this uh, affect your ordinal ranking of American League teams in any way? Were the Astros on top for you as it was, or had the Red Sox or Indians or someone else made any inroads on best team in the league status in your mind? I couldn't really separate them. I think the Red Sox, Indians, and Astros are all very good. I even think the Yankees are very good personally, but whatever. Well, let's just kind of put them mm-hmm. on the second tier. I think that the Astros clearly had some some issues on the pitching side, so Verlander makes them a lot better. But what, what always confuses me about moves like this, and I think that there are people within the Astros organization who would agree, if you trade this package for Justin Verlander, of course the idea is you're trying to go for it, you're trying to get to the World Series because the Astros are clearly already going to make the playoffs and they'll be a good team in the playoffs when they have a healthy lineup. It is one of the best lineups we've seen in a very long time so they're likely going to score and they make contact so they shouldn't be exploited by playoff opponents but Verlander would move their World Series odds what a couple of percentage points it can't be it wouldn't be like five points that would be absurd there are so many good teams in baseball they're all at the top of their divisions this is a a season that does not have one standout team I know the Dodgers are, are way out there but there are like six or seven or eight even legitimately really strong baseball teams who I could see winning World Series. It wouldn't even be a stretch to me to see the Diamondbacks win the World Series provided Fernando Rodney goes, I don't know, to play hide and seek somewhere <laughs> during the games and he doesn't show up. But mm-hmm. so you get Verlander and you move your odds just a tiny bit. And of course, you also move your odds maybe a tiny bit for next year and the year beyond, depending on on how Verlander ages. But what I have trouble wrapping my head around is all these teams know that the playoffs are still mostly unpredictable. There, as you and I have both examined countless times, there is not much you can do to actually guarantee or or improve your own odds of succeeding in the playoffs. So much of it is just you can't fix the randomness of a small sample and that it's always going to come down to that. And so I wonder with a trade like this, of course, it looks good. It looks good for PR reasons, but you're giving up three legitimate prospects in in this movie giving up a lot of talent from a system that has thinned out and i just wonder whether these moves are actually worth it once you get past all of the praise they get in the news media for giving the news media something to write about 
Like yeah. there was a, in Jeff Passan's article, I think it was, that he wrote about this trade. There was a line, I'll paraphrase, it said something about how uh, the industry had gotten annoyed by how the Astros have hoarded their young players. But like, that's what that's what got them here. The <laughs> right. Dodgers have hoarded their young players. So I think maybe I'm just coming at it from a perspective where these big blockbusters are celebrated by the people who write about them. But the people who write about them are biased because it gives them something to write about. And from a team perspective, I'm not actually sold these go-for moves are, are that useful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, particularly if it's the rental type thing where the guy's mm-hmm. not under control for a while. What is Verlander's remaining contract situation, did you say? Yeah, after this, two more years and $56 million combined. The Tigers are paying down $8 million of that each year. Mm-hmm. He also has a vesting option for 2020 that, who knows, if it if it picks up, then presumably that means he's worth it. Yeah, he'll have gone through several transitions between Acehood <laughs> and non-Acehood by that time, so no telling. Yeah, and I guess it's worth acknowledging at least that maybe there's there's some small influence here from what's been happening in Houston and maybe the team just wanted to make some kind of public statement. I don't think that that's actually has too much basis in fact. I don't think that a baseball organization, especially like the Astros, would operate in that way, but they will at least try to sell this, I'm sure, as a move that they made to try to bring the city of Houston together. And, you know, it does help in that regard. And one of those soft factors that this is news that people in Houston can wake up to. And if they're paying attention to sports news, which, you know, maybe they actually aren't Mm because there's so much else going on. But if they do and they wake up to sports news, then it gives some people a reason to smile because Justin Verlander, one of those recognizable names, don't have to be much of a baseball fan to know that he's really good. And so, you know, something there. I would feel bad for not acknowledging it. Mm -hmm. So some brief trade deadline history here. I was able to just look up while we were talking. It was 1986 that the deadline moved from June 15th to July 31st. And it was apparently where it was before that because of Babe Ruth in part. But Going even further back here, there's some research at Sabre by Cliff Blau. He says, in the early years of Major League Baseball, there was no provision for trading or selling player contracts. The first rule allowing trades or sales was in the American Association in 1889. Even then, teams had to release the player in question and request that other teams not involved in the trade refrain from trying to sign him. In 1901, to attempt to curb defections to the American League, the NL required player approval of trades. The AL had the same rule. This right was eliminated in 1903, so that's interesting. (laughs) There was like no trade clauses just built into every deal early in baseball, and then they were like, nope. And the first trade deadline was established in the National League in 1917. After August 20th of each year, players had to clear waivers within the league before they could be sold or traded to another team of either league. The AL established a similar rule in 1920. Then they changed the deadline to June 15th, in 1923 and that is apparently because of Ruth so one more excerpt here at the time the American League and the National League were very much run as their own independent leagues it would not be until later in 1920 with the Black Sox scandal making headlines that MLB would appoint Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis as the very first commissioner of Major League Baseball in the American League among the eight teams there was a split between those five teams loyal to Ben Johnson president of the American League and the three teams that were at odds with Johnson it was a very strange situation to be in as an all-out civil war in the American League seemed to be a constant threat. So teams like the Yankees and Red Sox would actually go out of their way to make deals with the other teams for 
purely political reasons. You know, like, you can't say that we don't deal with you. We just sold you player X. So when the Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees for a little over $100,000, plus some other stuff, the rest of the league was outraged at the idea of the Yankees using their great financial strength to take advantage of the Red Sox to the detriment of the rest of the American League. Washington Senators owner Clark Griffith, who had also tried to get Ruth from Boston, proposed a rule that eventually prohibited any trader sale between August 1st and the end of the World Series unless the player had cleared waivers. And then the change to the more recent date came after a a collective bargaining agreement in the mid-80s. So I also have one non-serious baseball thing to Mm -hmm. bring up before we get to our guest. And this is related to our episode from last week and to Sam's article about the skunk in the outfield play and the weird play that we talked about with him where in a amateur championship game a a runner just ran into right field and stayed there and briefly broke baseball because no one knew what to do about it so we got an email from listener amin who says while at dinner over the weekend with a good friend and former teacher of mine who is also a division one ncaa softball umpire i referenced sam miller's skunk in the outfield piece for espn he told me that his wife a fellow ncaa softball fan had shown him the article after the ncaa softball rules committee had suddenly enacted a new rule about base runners running into the outfield the rule reads as follows 12.5.9 the batter runner is out when she runs the bases in reverse order runs intentionally into the outfield between bases or runs through first base unnecessarily into the outfield on a walk drop third strike or any batted ball either to confuse opponents or to make a travesty of the game. Rationale, the committee believes this tactic, which involves running out of the traditional base path in order to confuse the defense, does not support the spirit and intent of the rule on the runner's base path and makes a travesty of the game. And Amin continues, those rules were passed on August 17th. The publication date of Sam Miller's piece, August 17th. (laughs) I'm not saying that this one is definitely on Sam, but it's entirely possible that he actually managed to get in their heads and actually prompted rule changes in college softball who said baseball writers don't make a real impact on the world well sam says because sam says that it's just a wild coincidence (laughs) that they added this rule on the same day that he published his piece i guess he looked into it and asked someone that is very strange although i guess it makes sense that they didn't convene an emergency session of the (laughs) softball rules committee during the offseason to respond to sam's article on that very same day so just a strange coincidence that those things happen to appear on August 17th. Yeah, the, a strange coincidence because it's something that you would never, ever think. Well, I guess I don't need to explain why it's a strange coincidence. But yeah, you wouldn't think that any kind of rule that has to do with anybody like even amateur softball, let alone anything else, would be able to pass rule in a day. Probably each one takes about a year and a half just to find some sort of agreement, even over something as silly as this. But So if for any softball players out there who want to try out the skunk in the outfield, I guess you have to do it. Some level that isn't collegiate. Yeah, that's right. All right. Anything else? Just uh, quickly in passing, because I'm looking. Uh, this year, the Padres have been bad. You and I can both agree on that. Yes, Padres mm-hmm. bad. 59-74. Yep. They are playing close to their preseason projection, and they were projected to be the worst team in baseball at the start of the year by a couple of games. Mm-hmm. Also, at the start of the year, I mused about how I thought the National League looked kind of boring because I thought that it was going to be set. You would have the Dodgers win the West, Cubs win the Central, Nationals win the East, and then obviously the Giants and the Mets would win the wild cards. Before the year, the Giants were projected to finish 23 games better than the Padres. The Mets were projected to finish 20 two games better than the Padres. Padres currently have a better record than both the Mets and the Giants means nothing. 
Nothing yeah. is new here. The Giants have been bad for a while. Mets have every good player on the Mets is currently unavailable due to injury. So it doesn't really mean anything. Doesn't mean that the Padres are better than those teams, but they're probably going to finish with a better record than those teams, which, well, that's pretty incredible if you think about how you might have responded to that back in March. It's not quite <laughs> like if the Brewers beat the Cubs for the NL Central, which I don't think is going to happen, but in in some ways it's actually even more incredible, even though it's not going to make a difference for the playoff picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Padres, I guess, are the team that has come closest to actually testing out the scenario that we are about to talk about in that <laughs> they had three essentially A-ball players on their opening day roster, real five picks that they were just trying to keep on the roster all season. That is not quite the scenario that we are talking about now. But let's take a quick break and we will be back to discuss whether either of us or any of you listening could get a hit in a Major League Baseball game. Into center field, first Major League hit for Alex Hassan. That's got to feel good. Longoria getting the baseball over to the Red Sox dugout for him. That's a moment you never forget in your whole life. I think every player that plays this game remembers their first major league hit. Looked like it was a changeup that time and able to stay back, keep the hands back, and drive it in the center field for the base hit. All right, so as promised, we are now joined by Jeff's colleague and my kind of colleague also, Eno Saris from Fangraphs. Hello, Eno. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, and Eno wrote a very popular post called, Would Chris Hayes Get a Hit in a Full Season of Play? And this is prompted by a question that Chris Hayes has, which is just, is if he played a full season's worth of plate appearances in MLB, would he get a single hit? And he speculated that he would not, but, you know, talked to some people and dug into some numbers to try to find out if we could answer this question. And this is obviously a question that a lot of people have had. I think we've talked about it on this show in the past. And we also wanted to have a player on, someone who knows what it is like to have recorded a major league hit. It's Alex Hassan, who was drafted by the Red Sox in 2009, made it to the majors in 2014, and got a hit in his second at-bat, so it took him two whole opportunities to get a hit in the major leagues. He is uh, retired now, but he was a career 370-plus OBP guy at AAA, so he knows what it takes to get hits, and we wanted to have him on also to weigh in on this issue. So hello, Alex, and welcome. Hey, guys. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So, Eno, do you want to describe how you approach this problem or, or maybe what your thinking was when you first mulled over Chris's question? It's it's funny. There are two separate, like totally separate ways to attack this, I think. And one is kind of about the mechanics of, of trying to hit a ball. And, and so I talked about how I've worked with Hunter Pence and did Zep. I did like a Zep thing where we it showed my bat speed against Hunter Pence's, and yeah. he's a lot better. <laughs> and it was something like twice as fast bat speed and three times faster to the ball in terms of you know seconds. Mm-hmm. So you know, in that way, it seems impossible. But on some level, I thought I think I would just be almost closing my eyes and swinging. Like I'd almost just be swinging before or like as the guy released the ball. 
and just think dead red middle and just isn't there almost like a, a numbers question here like isn't it just what's the role of luck like couldn't i just throw the bad head out there and if you gave me 600 plate appearances which is like 2000 plus pitches mm-hmm. you know wouldn't i wouldn't one of those uh find grass so that's that's <laughs> the way i chose to go at it um because it seemed to maybe be able to provide some sort of answer mm-hmm. alex do you want to walk us through the hit that you got in the major leagues this, uh, <laughs> this is the the hands-on experience of someone who has a major league hit off eric bedard which is not an easy pitcher to get a hit off of yeah it's funny because like i was ta- i was thinking about the velocity component like where velocity is today and like it's funny because bedard is obviously not a hard thrower mm-hmm. um so you know time to the ball maybe that's a you know the type of pitcher where somebody who is you know obviously not as quick to the ball as a major leaguer might have a better shot you know that for for me like you know i didn't have great bat speed i could put the bat on the ball i had coordination enough coordination put the bat on the ball but i think you know a guy a guy like that might be a, you know a good guy a good example of i mean obviously not not discounting him at all it's, you know fantastic pitcher had a fantastic career but you know maybe somebody who's a strike thrower doesn't throw as hard you know that, that might favor favor somebody who's you know like we said like we mentioned just not as quick to the ball frankly as as some major leaguers are yeah right so you know what was the the statistical approach that you took i guess you you looked multiple ways but how did you get into that i thought the approach that nafi took was the most fun which was to try and identify other really bad minor leaguers <laughs> i guess i mean the 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 thing that I thought was interesting was we do know that this exists, that the draft is so long that there are players that are picked that are known as favors. And, you know, the most famous, of course, is Mike Piazza in a way, just because he was Tommy Lasorda's grand, uh, godson. But Mike Piazza had good scouting reports. I mean, <laughs> yeah. like the, he, he was supposed to be able to maybe hit for power. And I don't, I don't think he actually counts so well in this, but um at least as a comparison for Chris Hayes, but there are there are these favors, and so we tried to identify these favors, and I guess they they would normally the, the scouting director's son, the scouting director's son, or or godson or nephew or whatever these kind of people that get picked in the fortieth round or the thirty whatever, and and we tried to figure out what leagues they would go to because they wouldn't be sent uh, to the Dominican or most likely, and uh, we tried to figure out sort of what statistical benchmarks they would reach so we found a bunch of guys that struck out you know half the time in american short ball leagues that were that were picked low in the draft so we tried Mm -hmm. to that's we tried to find those favors and then he basically did what projection guys always do which is kind of find a major league equivalent equivalence for the, that for the production that they gave mm-hmm. in those a ball leagues yeah and, this is um, nafi for people who don't know this is started by adam gutridge who used to work for the brewers and, and his former colleague for the brewers and now it's a, a statistical projection system for every player in the world basically that they license to to teams so that's just the the basic background yeah i think and i think that adam adam really nailed it when he when he figured out the sort of favors idea and you know that group would strike out 83% of the time in the major leagues. (laughs) (laughs) And so we said, well, that group probably still has some Mike Piazzas in it. It has some Russell Wilsons. It has some athletes. And though Chris Hayes played basketball at his magnet high school in New York City, he wasn't necessarily an athlete and he isn't now. So we had to discount that further 
And that's where the guesswork came in. And of course, there was going to be guesswork in this. But if you push it as far as you can, you give the guy a 97% strikeout rate. (laughs) And you cut his batting average of balls in play in a third. And he's just going to get a hit every three balls in play. Uh, You know, every, you know, more than that. Like, we got to cut it even further. You still, if you give him 100 batting average on balls in play, you still get 1.8 hits. I mean, of course, you're not going to give the guy 600 plate appearances, but... (laughs) Right. I was uh, I was curious about the nature of the learning curve here. Obviously, if you're talking about Chris Hayes, there's a difference between saying 600 repeats of his first plate appearance and 600 mm. plate appearances in a row. And now, Alex, obviously, you are a professional baseball player, for God's sake. But you look at even your your major league debut. This is a uh, you might remember this. This is how your first at bat went. Called strike, called strike, called strike. So that was the end of it. <laughs> and in the second at bat, uh, you went up there and you got a hit on the seventh pitch of the plate appearance. But even there, you have sort of the hint of a, a learning curve figure like, OK, I took one at bat to get used to this. And then the second one may be a little more comfortable. You swung at the third pitch. So when you're starting with someone at Chris Hayes level, which we'll just say is your standard fit American middle aged man level, how quickly do you think that player could start to at least look almost like a major league player or at least at least like an experienced <laughs> baseball player maybe not major league player right so once i read this article i started thinking of like okay if i were to prepare somebody for this experiment like how would i do it right so like first of all i would just eliminate off speed right we're just never gonna get there um, <laughs> there's just no sense in really trying to like i mean shoot i made it to the major leagues and like realistically like i was up there looking for fastballs hopefully time went up now when we were talking about the upper echelon of hitters, like they're going to stay on fastballs, they stay on off speed. But for like us mortal hitters, like the, like the, you know, it's just frankly like the not as good hitters, like you're just looking for fastballs, right? Like, and um, so like I would start there, let's just eliminate the off speed. Let's just stick with fastballs and let's just get on a pitching machine and like incrementally increase the velocity. Like, and eventually if we can get to around 90 miles an hour and you can hit that ball, like I would be shocked if you couldn't get one hit in a, in 600 plate appearances. Right. Like, and to your point (laughs) earlier, you know, as you improve, like, okay, let's say we start out and we're over 400, which (laughs) that is just like, I mean, I can't even like, you still get, I still get like nightmares about going like, over, you know, 20. (laughs) Then you start looking at like, you know, other industries and like other jobs, you know, like, okay, we're over 400. We still have 200 (laughs) plate appearances left, right? Like, where if you're starting to like put balls and play around plate appearance 400 that gives us almost like two months of plate appearances left right like so like you know i think if we if we start with fastball machine and we get to a point where we can put 90 miles an hour on a fastball machine in play i mean we're not talking line drop if we can put the ball in play here i i think i think that would be the best way to go let's just focus on heaters hopefully if we just cannot swing at breaking balls we're getting some advantage counts and we'll get some get some fastballs and I would, I would be, I would hope in the final 200 play appearances we could, you know, we could scratch out a couple of hits. <laughs> I've got two questions that that leap to mind. One is, it doesn't sound like you would think that bunting is the approach here. It's funny. So when I also read that, so I was just taking a few notes when I was reading this article, and I wrote bunt with a bunch of question marks. Like, <laughs> is that a play? Like, I think, I mean, that was, I mean, actually, bunting's not that easy. So like, I the one t- I got asked to bunt like I think two or three times in my pro career, and the third time I broke my finger. Uh, like, ball, you know, like so. I mean, look, I I knew how to play baseball, and I'm breaking my <laughs> finger bunting. So bunting's not like I think we're just assuming it's like this super easy you know, skill too. So there's some, like some level of skill to that. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure if if that's that's in play too. But then you might get like a seven man infield, right? <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I, yeah, I guess like, yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, 
That's a good point. I, I just look, I would be, sh- I don't know. I don't know. Chris I've never seen him swing, but like if, if there's some coordination there, like have you ever watched NBA players? Sometimes they go in for like a guest appearance and like, they either look like, Hey, that guy could figure out, or they look like, Oh my goodness. Like, <laughs> like that's a professional athlete. Like as long as they're in like the, okay, that guy looks okay. You know, segment of the, of that population. I think that would be, I, would, I, I mean, I personally would just be surprised if they couldn't in 600 plate appearances get a hit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have a second question, you know? Oh, I guess uh, about the learning, uh, the learning curve as it might go the other way. And and if we did, you know, coach this guy to hit 90 and he, you know, gets a couple lucky 88 mile an hour fastballs. Yeah, I think, you know, there could be a hit in there. But what about if pitchers just start throwing him junk all the time? Yeah, I know. That's a challenge. too. Um, <laughs> here's the deal. Like. I, I mean, here's the here's the prayer is that they're gonna okay. Let's let's throw them a first pitch cutter or a slider, and they go ball one, and then they get frustrated. All right, I'm gonna throw a better one. They go ball two, and then it's like, all right, you know what? Let's just throw this guy a heater. Um, yeah, right. that, that's the, I mean, that's the goal. That's the that's the the plan here. Like how well that would be executed, who knows? But like, look, like if if guys could ex- execute every single pitch, like there wouldn't be as many good hit, you know, as many many guys, you know, putting up the numbers they do. But also, I guess these guys are these guys are competitors right so if they actually have a guy who's like oh for 400 right you know they're gonna throw him a fast call because there's they're like no way no way this guy cannot hit my fastball <laughs> right i mean so the fact of the matter is that the last four years bartolo Colon has 15 hits and he's only seen about 75 percent fastball so even he isn't just getting like junk all the time i think pitchers have a tendency to want to come right after guys yeah. who they think can't hit the question is yeah. if they just brought if they had a five-man infield and then brought in two outfielders because you know this you're not going to hit for power like will you get a hit i don't know where the room is anymore that's true yeah that's the thing. I mean, this is different even from Bartolo Colon in that Bartolo Colon has been a big leaguer for many years and he gets lots <laughs> of plate appearances and he has hits. And this hypothetical person, whether it's Chris Hayes or you or me, would just be kind of a sideshow and it would be extremely embarrassing for a pitcher who gave up <laughs> a hit to him or her, you know, just even uh, like if it were a legitimate attempt to retire the person. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you wouldn't want to pitch around the person because that would make you look weak, right? Like you're afraid to to face this nobody, but you also right. just wouldn't want to take anything off, I guess, because you you wouldn't I, I mean, you wouldn't want to be the one to give up the legitimate hit to this person. So, I was also curious. I have a feeling they wouldn't actually change defensive alignments for this guy. <laughs> you know, I just think <laughs> like teams would be like rolling their eyes so hard that it would just be like the sideshow thing and the the competitive teams would be like we don't even care if this guy got the random single like we're not gonna be moving our you know outfielders in for this guy you know for this situation Mm -hmm. but you know i think an also interesting part of this is you touched on that with the 0 for 400 is this would be terrible this would be a terrible thing to do (laughs) 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 i I think across the board like the everyone would feel badly eventually you know imagine the guy's 0 for 400 the fans are all booing i mean they hate this idea at this point uh everyone's just sort of like can you get a hit and get it over with the player himself who's trying to get the hit it's like will i ever happen and yeah I maybe mean, that's the question could chris hayes last 600 plate appearances before he yeah. quit <laughs> yeah. yeah right you'd have to have a heck of a movie deal you know in place i think <laughs> 
Well, so, what, there was a there was an article. I forgot who wrote it, and I wish that I remembered. But it came out a few months ago about the the baseball writer who just wanted to be able to hit a home run. Did anybody see that? Wanted to be able to mm. hit a ball out of a major league park. Sports Illustrated, maybe. Uh, I like wish I batting practice or something. Yeah, yeah. I wish I remembered more details because it was good. And now I feel like an idiot for not remembering who wrote it. But he did eventually manage to hit a uh, hit more than one pitch into the the Crawford boxes in Houston. And this is like a I think a forty something year old dad who just kind of gained strength and learned form. So maybe there's a little bit of precedent there for being able to not only hit, but also hit the ball pretty hard. Yeah, you know, Hayes said himself that he that the whole reason he came up with this idea was that he'd been ramping up the pitching machine to, to 70 plus. So, mm-hmm. Mm. you know, I think he was kind of fascinated by the idea of like, could I learn to hit that 90 and could I get there? But I also think that a lot of this is luck. Like we're talking about the role of luck. So, you know, just putting the bat head out there 600 times or 2000 times, actually. <laughs> and uh, so how many how many are going to, you know, chaos their way into into play and you know, these guys are so good in the major leagues. I just wonder, it made me also wonder how many of their hits are, are just random ass luck. I mean, that's something <laughs> we study, right? But uh, it's probably a little bit more than one. Yeah. Well, Alex, I, I'm, I don't know if you can put yourself in our place, but I would think that the difference between you and, you know, with, with one hit and the guy who has 3000 hits is, you know, maybe sizable, but probably a lot smaller than the difference between you when you were you know in the majors and and me or you know or jeff it's it's just a huge gulf in ability and also preparation even taking the the fitness aspect out of it what do you think would be the most i don't know the most intimidating part of getting up there because it, it's not just the heat i mean it's you know probably the fastest pitches you've ever seen obviously it's the movement it's it's all the things that pitchers can do it's also the environment like this is taking place presumably in a big league ballpark you're on tv there's pressure that any one of us would not be accustomed to certainly during our athletic endeavors so uh, what do you think would be the most overwhelming part of trying to do this for a, a civilian yeah i mean there's look there's a lot of overwhelming like <laughs> you know aspects of this right like one like you've touched on i mean these guys are really good yeah you know the thing that stuck out to me is like the guys in the major leagues they're really good athletes like we talked about bartolo Colon. like like the the guy i mean i know i know how he appeared but he's a really good athlete right he, he moves really well maybe not in like the you know the most the traditional sense of like a, a sprinter or, or the most graceful but he's he's coordinating his body to deliver a pitch like you know pretty much where he wants pretty often like that's that takes some really you know incredible coordination so even like the the guys that you might look at and say hey those guys don't look like great athletes they have like really good coordination so i mean look there's a lot there's a lot of there's there's a lot of overwhelming factors about this i i think the best the best play would be to take take somebody who is the best athlete whether you have a good swing or not let's just take the best athlete and 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 hope for the best here it's i mean there's just so it's just so multifactorial in terms of what is going to be overwhelming Uh, i think the crowd aspect of it or the the atmosphere look like yeah that's intimidating but we're talking about 600 plate appearances so i mean that's month i mean months will go on you you adjust to the setting that you're in so i I think Mm. it's just gonna be the sheer the talent athleticism of, of those guys trying to trying to just be able to you know scratch out you know some performance against that level of competition i think would probably be the most challenging aspect what let's ask the panel i guess what do you think would take longer for the uh, for someone like chris hayes to be able to get a hit in the major leagues or for someone like chris hayes to be able to pitch and get a strikeout in the major leagues i would say hit 
personally. I, I don't know. I have this theory, and this is like completely subjective. Like, you feel free to throw this out. I like, just eliminate this. But like, I believe there's a lot of people walking around the streets who have possessed the physical ability to throw the ball hard, who just don't know it, who have never like picked up a baseball and thrown it. Right? They're like, just mm. might have the coordination, might have this, you know, strength, might have the whatever you know factors impact velocity that they just have never really done it. So I would, I would, I would send one of those guys over to drive line and just say like, all right, let's just. <laughs> like throw these heavy things and figure it out um, <laughs> and then eventually like i think that would come quicker is if, if if someone had some of the innate um or some of the physical attributes that would lend themselves to the law uh, i think yeah, i totally i totally agree because i also think about trick pitches right right like like knuckleball like just dry knuckleball you know you could if, yeah. even if you didn't have a great knuckleball you'd get a strike out eventually and would you then, would you well, if you're just if you're just a guy trying if the learning the knuckleball is is clearly incredibly difficult because no one does it no one can pick it I, up even at the end of go nowhere careers alex do you think it would be difficult to just face someone who sucked in the middle of everyone <laughs> who's major league caliber like if you're facing so, a bunch of major league pitchers and then suddenly i'm out there you know like throwing 60 or something would your timing be so off because i'm so bad oh like that, that maybe oh. <laughs> would that help yeah. Yeah, like, and a lot of times what happens in those situations, so like when we would face position players, like I would either, I was generally like either trying to walk or like, I, I yeah, you don't, you're not like, you don't really want those situations, number one. Number two, at that point in the game, like the umpire is like, all right, let's just get this going, mm -hmm. right? Like, so like the strike zone becomes subjective again subjective but it seems like when a position player or somebody who's at that point in the game the game's probably out of hand like the umpire starts to open up in the strike zone or you know you take a huge swing and you foul one off and then a bad call or something like that so like I, I can totally see I can totally see a scenario I mean look like position players come in the game and I remember Darnell McDonald like striking guys out struck somebody out <laughs> or something you remember like a few years ago so I you know I think that I think I, I could totally see that you know kind of throwing you off or, or some some factor there maybe a bad call or something like that you know mm -hmm. causing a strikeout mm -hmm. there's the idea of hitting speed right of throwing below hitting speed i mean alex cloudy goes out there you know throwing oh yeah an hour and yeah for sure and and yeah for sure and someone might just have like like claudio i think i faced him and he he's got a weird like just a, the ball comes out really weird right so like somebody might have just innately like this weird arm action or weird yeah. delivery just by default that you're like what the heck is that? like I've, i don't i just don't see this very often and i think that's sort of the issue with like guys who throw submarine like so you actually don't see a lot of those guys in the minor leagues just because like they're not like traditional prospects so like when you see it it's not like they're throwing it's not like you could figure it out if you face it routinely but you just don't don't. So I'm like, I'm assuming somebody out there would just have a you know an unorthodox way of delivering the ball that for in a short sample and a one at bat like yo yeah that could definitely throw you off. Mm -hmm. Did you ever play with anyone who was just extremely raw like in the pros like I don't know maybe in the Sally League or something someone who was just drafted or signed because he had great physical tools but had barely played baseball or something like that who was just like learning the game on a on a more yeah. elemental level than most people were you don't have to name names if if you don't want to but if anyone comes to mind i'm, I'm curious about just that adjustment because that's maybe the the closest we can come to a, a real life test case yeah we had a guy from the um university of washington i won't name his name i think he's in the nfl doing really well um 
and he he struggled to put the the ball in play. But again, he like it, it was such a short sample. It was like 40, 30 at bats or something like that. Like you take a guy like that. I mean, yeah, it looked like it, it looked raw. Um, but look, if I mean we're talking six hundred at bats, I just I just am praying that <laughs> nobody would have to you know experience an O for six hundred. Um, <laughs> it's just like unfathomable. Yeah, <laughs> right. So bad. I guess how could do you think if as long as we're going to think this one all the way through you would start horrible i think we we've all agreed to that you would start i don't know over 100 over 200 just something disastrous you'd be getting better your form would be getting better but at some point does maybe the the psychological aspect of it start to overwhelm whatever progress you're making like could you expect we'll just keep using chris hayes's name could you expect chris hayes to keep his focus even when he is over 250 over 275 and people are throwing water bottles at him yeah right. Yeah, the best play is like as soon as you start taking if you if he starts taking this seriously like <laughs> it, it would just i mean wear you down you know it's hard because from my perspective right like my livelihood like at some level not for the rest of my life but at that time in my life my livelihood depended on how i was performing so like there was just inherently more pressure i I mean probably more pressure i was putting more pressure on myself than probably chris hayes would be if if he somehow ended up in this situation i don't know like it's not like he's auditioning for his next year right like um (laughs) so as long as he could keep it light like and just understand we're not expecting much here and you're like you know you you're there's nothing really riding on this i i suppose you could get through it but as soon as you i mean you're competitive you're going to start expecting some result at some point and i i think it would really be challenging mentally i i I have a hard time it just be it would be hard to him it would be a really hard grind mentally i think Mm -hmm. Maybe it would turn around at some number. Maybe actually by 400, you're a cult hero. Yeah. You know? yeah. And everyone's just like, oh, my okay. God, get this guy a hit. Throw him a cookie, please. Yeah. I wonder at what point pity would enter the equation here, right? Because there has to be just like on a human level. I mean, most pitchers are competitive and they're not going to be the one to to give him that first hit. But on the other hand, just watching that suffering Game after game, you would think that maybe eventually, like in a blowout or something, where it just doesn't matter. It would. I might be like a big name yeah, pitcher, maybe. right? Because a big name pitcher would have little to lose, and you know, maybe you know, maybe they are pitching the, the last inning of that the, they're going to be out there for a seven nothing game, and they're like, you know what, I'm right. Justin Verlander, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is not going to be a stain on my on my mm-hmm. on my career. And this might make everyone's day if I just and also maybe end this. <laughs> yes, that's well, then it. Because maybe when he gets his hit, In that done. case, can you imagine how horrible it would be to then try to hit after you get your first hit and all the pity goes away? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. You're still here? <laughs> there was a guy who was in the Red Sox organization at the same time as you, Alex, although I don't think this is who you were referring to because he was drafted a few years after you. But Shaq Thompson, who is now a linebacker for the Panthers in the NFL, and he was a, a college football player. Maybe this is who you were referring to? That was who, yeah, okay. that was the guy. Okay. Yeah. Oh. yeah, so this was in 2012. He was 18, and he was playing in the Gulf Coast League, and he got 39 at-bats, and did not get a hit. He struck out 37 times, which uh, is rough. He somehow walked eight times, which I don't know if he had a tiny strike zone or pitchers at that level can't throw strikes or or what the deal was there. But uh, 
yeah, he has a, a career zero batting average in only 13 games. It, it didn't last long, and obviously he was just, you know, extremely athletic, and they just wanted to to give him a chance. But that's, yeah, maybe that's the best example of a guy who just had no baseball background but was athletic, and that is what you right. happened when you when you throw that person into that situation, and that's rookie ball. So, <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah, I bet he's in our sample, actually. Yeah, maybe. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's not a encouraging comp, I guess, for any of us, because <laughs> I'm sure we're a lot less athletic than yeah. Jack Thompson. So <laughs> not playing in the NFL currently. <laughs> yeah. <no. laughs> All right. Well, I guess you know you you have determined statistically that probably we would fluke into a few hits here and there. Dan Heron weighed in on Twitter, and he opined that we would get a hit somehow. Alex seems to concur that it would happen. And do you think we would only get blue pits, though? Like, would they only be cheapies? Would they be, like, some kind of squibber that just happens to go somewhere that a fielder wasn't standing? I mean, could we ever make solid contact, or is that just too much to ask? My guess is, this is, again, completely a guess. Yeah. If if there were hard, hard contact, it would probably be, like, a pull-side ground ball. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe a little bit out front. Yeah. Out, you know, you yeah. caught it. You know, you caught it out front on the barrel, and it and kind of top spun it, maybe in like the sixth hole, like that, that or something down the line. Third baseman die, like hits off his glove or something like that. Hit that way. That's my guess. Who knows? Like I, I honestly, I've never. I mean, you guys might be like super coordinated too. Like I, I've golf with like I, I'm terrible at golf, but like I'll sometimes I'll go with somebody who I'm just like this guy. He's not a good athlete, but he has some coordination mm-hmm. there. I, you know, who knows? Like yeah, I, I honestly don't know, but I should have I'm asked Chris Hayes if he can play I'm video games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. And then the speed element comes into it, too, because as you mentioned, if you're just kind (laughs) of hitting weak grounders or something, maybe a a big leaguer with big league speed could beat that out. But maybe we couldn't. You know what might happen is a bear, a a ball you you don't hit well. And a a third baseman says this is going to be do or die for me. I'm going to barehand it. (laughs) And they awarded a hit. I wouldn't. That could happen. Mm. Yeah. And you know that the official score would be on your side. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Can you quantify the, the difference between just your average major leaguer and your average American male, I guess, just in terms of, I mean, obviously the experience element is huge and just the years and years and years of seeing pitches is an enormous part of the difference. But also it's just size and speed like it's hard to tell on tv because you're looking at major leaguers versus major leaguers and so we notice jose altuve or aaron judge but everyone else just looks like a regular person but when you're up close to them that is not the case i mean you're you're 6'3 220 at least or you're listed at that i assume i you know i don't know if you were uh, fast by by big league standards you weren't like a, a huge base dealer but i'm guessing relative to the typical person you were because like even guys who look slow on tv are not slow <laughs> relative to people who right. are just you know jogging on the weekend Can confirm yeah, <laughs> yeah like look like I, I i was the athleticism in the major league stands out even mm-hmm. like guys who don't really like even like i remember watching eucalyptus like he you know had a weird body like he was a uh, not a tall guy and, and short and sh- sort of stocky, but he could move like he, he was really fluid and really had some quick twitch in him. And, and so even those guys, like the guys that don't jump out at you and you're like, oh, well, you know, he like Euclid probably didn't look, you know, like the prototypical big leaguer, but he had he had fast twitch. He had the ability to to really move quickly and move pretty fluidly. 
that stuck out to me in the big leagues. And, and, and frankly, like I wasn't a very good athlete. <laughs> I didn't move very well. And I, I think that, you know, that was a challenge for me. Um, but yeah, like I would say the, the guys who are everyday big leaders, they, they are, they are some really, really good athletes. So I think like you, like you mentioned that, that sort of gets lost when everybody up there is a pretty good athlete, but when you're coming from one, myself, not being a very good athlete and two, like, you know, seeing other guys in the minor leagues, you know, there, there is a, there is a pretty clear jump in terms of athleticism that at least I, I, I thought I saw. A few years ago, Rob and I wrote an article where he, uh, he had several months before writing this article, he had said aloud that he bet he could outrun David Ortiz. Long story short, he invited himself and myself and other part-time baseball writer, Matthew Corey, to go get ourselves timed by scouts at a nearby playing field. And we had a devil of a time. Well, we actually had trouble even staying on our feet. We tripped a lot, but we had a, a lot of trouble as well, just even trying to outrun David Ortiz to first base. So there's no question here, but just for everyone's frame of reference, all of us are not unathletic and not old men and uh, and we had trouble outrunning uh, the guy who was probably the slowest or one of the very slowest major leaguers in the game so that's kind of the other factor here not just making contact but also you have to buy yourself like an extra half second in some cases or even a full second relative to the really fast runners just to get the first base all right anyone else have uh, any thoughts on this topic any questions it might actually have to be we were talking about good contact it might actually have to be good contact to get the hit right because you're so slow. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> this thing about Adrian Gonzalez got uh, challenged to a foot race by David Vassay, who's like a beat writer uh, and radio host. And he Adrian Gonzalez destroyed him. So there's not only <laughs> like you guys were trying sort of time trials, basically. There's the swinging a bat and running on the actual field effect, too, that probably makes it even harder. So. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm glad we could hash this out. I'm glad there's some hope for us. Not that we'll ever get an opportunity. <laughs> Alex, thanks for, for joining us and weighing in. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. You can find him on Twitter at alexhassan 27 You have left baseball behind now. I, I'm curious about how you decided to do that because so many guys are just baseball lifers. Even if they don't last a long time in the majors, they get into coaching, they get into player development, which you briefly did with the Dodgers after you stopped playing last year. So what made you decide to just go cold turkey? Yeah, um, it was multifactorial. You know, the challenge of I had a, the last few years of my career, I was moving around quite a bit. One season I got designated, I think, five times and claimed five different times and moving all over the place. You know, I, my wife was with me for, for all of that. So I, I think, you know, I, I was looking for a little bit more of a stable lifestyle. And number two, like I just, I started to just, I wanted to like explore other things that I'm passionate about that I'm interested in and um, technology is one of them. Um, and just, you know, I thought it was going to be a new challenge and really starting you know, starting starting over and being a beginner and trying to learn something new was 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 really appealing to me. So that those are you know a couple of the factors that sort of led me to sort of moving on from baseball. So your first day working at Dell, were you as overmatched as we would be <laughs> on a major league field? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it was it's an adjustment for sure, definitely an adjustment. But you know, I'm I'm learning a lot and I'm, I'm working hard and and I'm really enjoying it. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Eno, thank you for joining us also and for writing the article. Oh, thanks for having me. You guys are awesome. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Okay, so we will wrap it up there. Another reminder, you can find our raffle in the Facebook group, which you should join anyway at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. You don't have to be a member of the Facebook group just to see that post, which is pinned to the top of the page. Read the instructions, make a donation, forward us some confirmation that you did that, 
and you'll be entered into the random drawing for Effectively Wild merch and memorabilia next week. Thanks to all of you who are participating. And thanks to all of you who have supported us on Patreon, which you can do to keep the podcast going at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include Elliot Carter, Samuel Klein, Richard Anderson, Michael Workman, and Beth Davies-Stofka. Thanks to all of you. You can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. You can keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. By the way, podcast.fangrafts.com is also where you send your confirmation that you have made the donation to Houston. Like many of you, we are not planning to labor on Labor Day, so we won't be back on Monday, but we will be back shortly after that. Have a wonderful long weekend, and we will talk to you next week. 